Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. So you might take your Bibles and turn over to Philippians chapter 3. Passage that before is before us this morning is going to deal with some metaphysical matters, so to speak, internal matters that are on the interior of our life. And as we've learned, if we haven't learned that by now, we will learn that this morning again, that so much of what brings us life does not occur on the outside, it occurs on the inside. And this week, um, maybe you read it, I was reading in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette an article, very insightful article, written by William Raspberry, who is the black columnist who often writes for that newspaper. And he had an interesting article on hunger in America that I think, that I think speaks directly uh, to this point. Listen to what he says. And by the way, it's not an art article on hunger that is of the belly, but it's an article on hunger of the soul. It was entitled, Nation Hungers for the Politics of Meaning. Of Meaning. And it revolved around another gentleman named Michael Lerner, who is a writer who's really challenged a lot of the political establishments, both right and left, with what he calls a politic of meaning. And Raspberry quotes Lerner as saying this, what Democrats and Republicans have missed is that human beings have a deep need to have their lives make sense today, to transcend the dynamics of individualism and selfishness that predominates in the competitive marketplace of American society and to find a way to place their lives in some context of meaning and purpose. He says Americans are hungry for that, not just more economics. And Raspberry writes in regards to this statement by Lerner. He says, I think Lerner has come quite close to identifying a major problem in our civic and political life today. We see only the problems today of the have-nots, jobless, moneyless, homeless. What we miss and miss deeply is the fact that for many of us who are winning at this game, that absorbs our energies, the prizes are less and less satisfying. We chase money and privilege and exemption from responsibilities because we haven't learned to identify the things which we really long for. And when what we chase after doesn't ease the hunger pains, doesn't bring us any nearer to happiness, either as individuals or as a society, we chase all the harder after more of the same. The pain learner says that drives us is our daily awareness that economics aside, our lives aren't working all that well today. Then Raspberry ends with this statement of himself, a confession. He says, I'm hungry. How about you? A hunger that's on the interior of our lives. John Cheever writes this. He says, The main emotion of adult Americans who have all the advantages of wealth, education, and culture is disappointment. It's amazing, isn't it? And many of us identify with that because we chase after a million different voices that are promising a million different advantages, and when we've tasted them, and absorb them, there's a certain emptiness that comes with them, and we know it. All of this, I believe, can be reduced to a very simple statement of American life. 
Most Americans are satiated, but they are not satisfied. We have enough, but enough is not enough. So where do we go from there? We live lives that are both full and empty all at the same time. And that is very confusing on the interior of our life, even while on the exterior, we walk with a great amount of apparent affluence. What does all that mean? Lerner and Raspberry recognize all this as a meaning of life problem. Evidently, they had to avoid the word spiritual for politically correct purposes. But it is very much a spiritual problem. And they also offer no specific solutions to the problem. So for that reason, we must consult another writer. And the one that is before you is the one that we'll look at this morning. It's the Apostle Paul. And I think what he offers on your outline is three very simple reminders, but very profound now. They'll be simple, but don't let their simplicity let you think I've grasped that. Because you'll spend the rest of your life grasping what's on that outline. But he offers three very simple reminders of where satisfaction in life is and why it's so elusive to American culture. Look at verse 1. He is concluding his letter, but he'll take two more chapters to actually finish. Paul had the same problem that I do. And uh, he says this, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. I like what the Living Bible says. It says this, Whatever happens, dear friends, be glad in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you this, and it is good for you to hear it again and again and again. In other words, some things, some spiritual things are worth repeating over and over and over again. They are extremely important, and repetition is a great teacher, especially about spiritual truths. Now, that's important for a couple of reasons. One is, spiritual truths aren't obvious in everyday life. If you don't start your day fixating on some spiritual truths, then oftentimes you live in the flesh all day. It's very difficult to live with spiritual truths when they will never come natural to us unless we spend some time fixating on them to start every day. And you know that as well as I do. But then secondly, spiritual truths don't immediately make sense. We read them. They make sense in the sense of the general principle, but kind of like was mentioned here this morning, you don't really know them apart from hearing them and trying to pursue them again and again and again. It takes time for those sometimes very simplistic truths to sink into the core of your heart. I remember as a seminarian reading Paul's statement, for instance, in Galatians 5. He said in Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit and you shall not carry out the desires of the flesh. Do you understand that? It's pretty simple, isn't it? Just walk by the Spirit, no flesh problem. That's what he's saying. It's a great promise. And now it's 20-something years later, and I'm still trying to find the bottom of that spiritual truth. It is that profound. Now, I've learned some things along the way as I've tried to grab on to that truth, walk in the Spirit. I've learned, for instance, that to walk in the Spirit means that each day I must consciously and willfully give myself over to the living God. I got to say, Lord, I want to live for you. I want you to be a part of my experience. I want you to live in me and through me this day. I want your presence. That's got to be a conscious decision. I've learned that. 
I've also learned that in the midst of the day, there are going to be thousands of voices going off in my head. Which one do I listen to as I walk in the Spirit? And in that, I've learned how important it is to know the Scripture, to know the Bible, because the Bible oftentimes is kind of that essential ingredient off to the side that helps me clarify which voice in here is the voice of God and which voice is my own deceptive heart that simply wants what I want. Those are some things that I've learned over the years. But it's a simple truth that takes years to master. But in mastering, there is tremendous reward. It's the same way here. In verse 1, there's a simple truth. But it is a very profound truth. So profound that Paul says, if you'll notice in verse 1, and you might even circle it, that it is a safeguard for your life. Now, some of you probably over the last month or so have not felt real excited about drinking Pepsi. And the reason for that is because you didn't think it was safe anymore, right? You thought there'd be something rattle around in there. And uh, we've come to maybe appreciate in our culture safeguards on certain products. I, sometimes it's frustrating when you get up in the middle of the night and you've got a pounding headache and you go down to get some Tylenol, for instance. Have you ever done that? And you pull out a new box of Tylenol, gotten them out, and there's this thick red wrapper around there that takes forever to get off. And then you get it off and you find out not only is it childproof, but it's adult-proof. And you're trying to match that little thing up at midnight to pop it off. And then you do, and there's a seal that takes a jackhammer to get through. And then once you get through that, if some of you have the nimble fingers that I do, there's this cotton in there. And you keep pulling off these little pieces of cotton, but you never seem to exhaust that and you actually get to, you know, the aspirin. But I have to appreciate the links that company has gone to to safeguard that product because it protects my physical health. Verse 1, Paul says, listen, it's not trouble for me. It doesn't bother me. It's not a pain to me to remind you over and over again of a truth that will safeguard your life. And that truth is this. Notice, you can even underline it, rejoice in the Lord. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? But it's pointing to a direction and a focus and a pursuit of your life if you'll ever find satisfaction. It's not rejoice in the Lord. It's rejoice in the Lord. That's what he's saying. He's giving a direction, a place to look for everything, which brings us, by the way, to what I think is reminder number one to finding, a, to finding satisfaction in life. It's listed wrong on your outline, so I'll give it right from the pulpit. A satisfying life is in the Lord alone. Almost makes you want to break out in song, doesn't it? In the Lord, the Lord alone is everything I need. See, we're talking about a focus, a focus that leads to an inward pursuit and dynamic that helps me decide what's important in life and what should be important to me. That's what we're talking about. Another way of saying it, but from the opposite perspective, would be this. Because it sounds so simple, it eludes us. It's this. Don't look for your joy or for your satisfaction in life anywhere else. In anyone or anything or listen, you'll be disappointed. You want to play it safe? Then you have to rejoice in the Lord, not in your looks, <laughs> Heaven forbid me doing that. Not in your health, not in your activity, not in your success, not in your achievements, not in who you know, and not in what you've done. 
those things, there's nothing wrong with those things, but when those things begin to be the focus and the goal of your life and tantalize you in saying to you that if you get there and you have it and you have it all, you'll be satisfied, you'll be sorely disappointed. Because when you do, there'll be emptiness, not fulfillment. There's a place that man must come and all of life will begin to pull all those things away from you in time to where you come to a place where God wants you and that is in me and in me alone is satisfaction in life. When I'm the center, everything else takes its rightful place. But when other things get into the center, they're promising you something that they can't deliver on and in a godless American culture, we're discovering that even through a secular columnist. We got it all, but the predominant feeling of American life behind the scenes is disappointment. Because apart from God, life is disappointing. And we need to reckon with that. Christ must be the core of one's life. And sometimes we need to see how that works out, even in some desperate circumstances. For instance, in the life of Dennis Byrd. You don't know Dennis, but Dennis was a defensive end for the New York Jets. And in his life was the focus, Jesus Christ. And it showed itself in a number of ways and who he was and how he related to people and especially in how he gave himself to people and to charities. And let me just give you one example that I think gives you a taste of what I think was this man's rich life. Dennis was attending an auction of items for sports celebrities to benefit Forward Face. It was a charity for children who had cranial facial disorders. At this auction, he met seven-year-old Stephen, and Stephen was a victim of that disorder, had a severe case of a cranial facial disorder. And uh, as he sat next to Stephen, Stephen showed him this little football card that he had made of himself. And so Dennis took that card with Stephen's permission and put it on the auction block next to autographed footballs from sports celebrities and helmets and jerseys and all that kind of thing. And so eventually, up came Stephen's football card, and nobody bid a thing. But out in the audience, Dennis Byrd yelled, $100. And still no one auctioned any, offered any other bid, and then he said, $200. Then people began to clap, then $300. And finally, the auctioneer slammed down his gavel, said, soul, and the crowd was cheering, but no one was cheering more than little Stephen, whose face now had lit up like a Christmas tree in and feeling a deep sense of love and acceptance from Dennis Byrd. That's the kind of guy Dennis was. On November the 29th, in a game against the Kansas City Chiefs, Dennis collided with a teammate and broke his neck and was instantly paralyzed from the waist down. After a seven-hour operation to clear the debris from his injured vertebra and to stabilize his spine with a pin, there was a huge press contingent outside the hospital room waiting to hear a word, any word, on his prognosis and his condition. Dennis sent word through his wife, Angela, and on the note it said, as Angela wrote it, tell them that Dennis says he's glad that God chose him for this. And then she added, and tell them I'm glad that God chose me to be Dennis's wife. That doesn't make sense, does it? See, it's hard to even reckon with that because our focus is where? See, I've got you. Our focus is on health, prosperity, and all those things. Not Dennis Byrd. 
He's glad. I'm glad. Verse 1, rejoice in the Lord because we will never find satisfaction in life with our health. We will never find satisfaction in life with a paycheck or with a mate even or with our career or in our strength, but in the Lord, period. Nothing else follows in the Lord. And that requires a deep abiding relationship that sometimes when we try to relate to it in a sermon, there's not much there. It just seems fairly scarce and impoverished. And in that impoverishment, we find why the major predominating emotion of American culture is disappointment. It's a good reminder, isn't it? When all else is gone, what will be there in your life? And will you be able to rejoice in it when you get there? Rejoice in the Lord, Paul says. It doesn't bother me to say that to you, but it is a safeguard over your life to end well. Now, I want you to know in the verses that follow, verses 2 through 6, Paul introduces us really to some things that can rob us of that kind of focus. Let me read verses 2 and 3. And notice the bewares. He says, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And you might underline this last phrase. And put no confidence in our flesh. What does he mean there? Who is he talking to? He calls these people to avoid dogs. And I want you to know when you called a person dog back in the first century, you weren't talking about man's best friend. I mean, you were talking in that day of someone who was dangerous, a scavenger, a wild beast, not kind of that cuddly, um, warm friend that are kind of house pets. We have some neighbors who moved in and they have a dog that kind of reminds me of what he was probably referring to. This dog is, well, it's a mixed breed. It's half bulldog and half pit bull. And uh, body of a bulldog, face of a pit bull. Now, now, Petey is a nice dog. I want you to know that. I want to get Petey's reputation straight. And, uh, and, and late at night, he kind of comes over to the house. You know, he's kind of out doing his chores and that kind of thing goes back in. But one night I was coming back from the airport and uh, it was late. It was real late and it was raining. And I was probably driving a little too fast to go up the steep driveway to our house. And Petey comes running out to meet the car. I slam on my brakes. He slams on his paws and we collide. And I hear this thump and Petey goes on his back. And then Petey got up and something in Petey's mind got jarred and a dial clicked over to pit bull. <laughs> and Petey came up to my door and I started to open to get out, but Petey was there and he's going, <laughs> so I said, nice Petey, nice Petey. And I drove up the hill and Petey just trotted right alongside my car. <laughs> and I got it to my car and he wouldn't let me out. So I, so I hit the, the garage door opener and it came up and my wife's van was in there and Petey wouldn't let me out. So I had a car phone. So I called my house. <laughs> I said, Sherrod, I'm out here with Petey and Petey won't let me out and he's mad. So I said, could you back the van out? And as you back the van out, I'll rush in and shut the garage door. And I did that, except I left Sherrod out side with Petey. Well, Petey started wagging his tail when he saw Sherrod, so she got in okay. But you know, for the next month, every time I walked out of my house, I kind of looked around for Petey. <laughs> 
And about a month later, I took out the trash late at night and I looked up and there on my doorstep was Petey. And he was looking at me and, and I was trying to get inside that dog's mind and say, is he pit bull or friend, you know? Well, Paul wants you to know about these guys. These were not friends. These were pit bulls and they needed to be avoided. They were teachers and they were a mixed breed. They were half Christian and half Jew. And they followed Paul from city to city seeking to disrupt his ministry of the gospel by telling people, you can believe in Christ, sure, but that's not all you have to do to find satisfaction in life. You've got to keep the law of Moses. They were called Judaizers and they Judaized Christianity with rules and regulations and performance in order to feel good about yourself. Theirs was not a faith-based religion. Theirs was a performance-based religion. And life was not in Jesus Christ, but in Jesus Christ plus other things, plus how well you did and how well you lived your life. And so satisfaction became a performance of the flesh. And that's why Paul says, by the way, in verse 3, I put no confidence in the flesh. But they did. Now here we are 20 centuries later. We don't have any Judaizers around. But let me tell you, right in this body, the philosophy of Judaizers still exists. Because so many of us are still frantically trying to find satisfaction in life, not from Jesus Christ, and what flows from a dynamic relationship with Him, but it is trying to be accomplished through what we do, how we look, who we are, who we associate with, what we have, and we think that if we finally get there and have it all, control it all, and are a be-all, we'll be satisfied, and I want you to know, you'll be sorely disappointed. I love this honest confession of a wonderful Christian, Tim Hansel, and many of us will probably see ourselves right now with what he says about himself a number of years ago. He said this, Work has always been highly esteemed in my family, and hard work was seen as the primary tool for success. And success and satisfaction, unfortunately, have an unhealthy way of coming together as one. I figured if, I were good, if it was good to work 10 hours, it would be even better to work 14 in college, I seemed to have the energy to withstand the pressure. And I remember times at Stanford when I wouldn't even go home at night. Instead, I would push a table up to the door of the cafeteria at 3 a.m. and sleep on it using my books as a pillow. And then in the morning when I had to be at work, the first person to open the door would knock me off the table and I'd wake up to start the day. I convinced myself that I was sleeping faster than anyone else. During the years when I was a coach and an area director for Young Life, I would work 12, 14, even 15 hours a day, six or seven days a week. And I would come home feeling that I hadn't worked enough. So I tried to cram even more into my schedule. I spent more time promoting living than I did living. My life wasn't abundant. It was a frantic sprint from one hour to the next. I can remember times when fatigue left me feeling isolated and alienated feelings that previously had been foreigners to me. Unprepared for such parasites on my energy, I became frustrated and laughter, which had always been my most treasured companion, silently slipped away from my life. I was dominated by shoulds, ought tos, must. I would waken unrefreshed in the morning with a tired kind of resentment and hurry through the day trying to uncover and meet the demands of others. 
Days were not lived anymore. They were endured. I was exhausted trying to be a hope constantly rekindled for others, straining to live up to the images of me. I had worked hard to develop a reputation as one who was concerned, available, and involved. And now I was being tyrannized by it. Often I was more at peace in the eyes of others than in myself. The pace I was trying to maintain had no time for rhythm and awe, for mystery and wonder. I barely had time to care adequately for friends or for myself. In order to keep up my incessant activity, God was simply reduced to fit into my schedule, and I suffered because He didn't fit at all. You feel yourself in that? There are millions of American Christians who could write the exact testimony, and you know why? Because whether they know it or not, as insidious as it is, there is a deep belief, a deep presupposition that if I could have done all that Tim Hansel just said, after I'd done it all, I'd be satisfied. And what he's helping us see on the front end, that after you've done it all, after you've become all, you are still disappointed with life because it's not found in a thing or an earthly someone. It's found in verse 1, in the Lord. And nothing else can replace that. It is so important that we hear that. He's sitting here speaking to these people, telling them that you can't earn your salvation. And I want you to know, parallel to this, you cannot earn satisfaction. That's reminder number two on your outline. A satisfying life cannot be earned. I know it's the old-fashioned way to earn it, but in spiritual things, it must be believed and received, not earned. Satisfaction in life is not an accomplishment. It is a relationship, and it flows out of that relationship, that satisfaction. Hear me, brothers and sisters in Christ. Hear me. This is an essential truth for all of us. You'll never earn your way to God, and you'll never earn your way to rest, our peace, our life. If anybody knew this emptiness of the flesh, it was the Apostle Paul. If you'll notice in the verses that follow, he says, you know, if you could find this in the flesh, I would have found it. So in other words, if you want to talk about background and ancestry, I can beat you all in the flesh. I'm, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, the first tribe of all the 12 tribes to put a king on the throne of Israel. And then notice, not only that, as to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I can appeal to my orthodoxy, and I've obtained the title Pharisee, which makes me at the pinnacle of religious experience that none of you can match. But not only that, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, I can point to my activity, my zealousness to stamp out at one point in time those Christian infidels and in stamping them out, I could show myself approved as one who had unbelievable accomplishments for the purity of the faith. And not only that, I could boast about my morality because if you put the law up to me, the Mosaic law, at least on the outside, I'm blameless. I have it all in the flesh, but the flesh did nothing for my internal life. Because I think you could write over these two verses the same thing. I had all the advantages, but what I felt internally 
was disappointment. The great scholar A.T. Robertson summed up Paul's life this way. He had a marvelous record scoring a hundred in Judaism. He was the star of hope for all of Israel, but all those flesh credentials only kept him from real life because he actually believed they would give him satisfaction. A satisfying life cannot be earned. Mark that well. That sounds un-American. It really does. But this is not Americana here. This is Christianity that we're talking about. Well, Paul moves from that to verses 7 through 9. And in verses 7 through 9, he tells us what he had to do to break away from those flesh credentials. He says in verse 7, he says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. Underline that, for the sake of Christ. More than that, I am counting all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Verse 7 and verse 8 are different in time. Verse 7, when he says, I have counted, he's speaking past tense. Verse 8, and I'm speaking in the Greek here, I am counting, he's speaking present tense. What does he mean by the two being different? Well, he says, I have counted. I think there's a reflection going on in Paul at this point. I think he's reflecting back to the Damascus road when as this zealous Jew, Pharisee, Hebrew of Hebrews, he discovered that all his flesh efforts were misguided in the moment that he met the resurrected living Christ in that blinding light on the Damascus road. And all those honors he had accomplished and all those self-achievements and the pride that he felt in his works and the things that he had done and the track record that he had established and all those things that he had used for so many years to make him feel good about himself. When he met the master, he realized how empty they really were. They all came crashing down. And in that moment, Paul saw where life was and wasn't, and it led him to a decisive act in his own life. You see, he could have still walked away from that. But it led him to a decisive act in his own life where he discovered that his identity was not in all those things, nor would they ever bring him full satisfaction. He had to make a decision. But when he made the decision to gain Christ, he had to also let go of something, didn't he? He had to let go of his ancestry. He had to let go of his religion. He had to let go of his reputation. And he had to let go of that futile way of life that actually believed that in things and earthly people, you can find satisfaction. It was a major philosophical paradigm shift in Christ alone. The Westminster Confession says the chief end of man is to enjoy God and glorify Him forever. That's what Paul discovered here. It's a simple truth, but it's profound in living it out. Paul realized, I'm never going to have satisfaction in things. It's going to be in this living Christ. And therefore, I have to make a decision. And that decision is in verse 7. Do you see it? I have counted all these things as loss. He's moved him out of the center post of his life and he's moved the living Christ in. And the question for you is, have you done that? It always brings us to this question. Have you come to a place where those things, if I just had this, if I were just here, if I could just get this promotion, if I could just have this woman or this man, 
if I could just make this amount of money, if I could just get this promotion, if I could just go to these places, then I'd be satisfied. And I'd really feel like I fulfill my life. Remember Lou Holtz said that he had a hundred things he'd like to do before he dies so he can feel satisfied. Paul would say, Lou, do all 100 and you won't. Great experiences, fun times, rich, empty, because the center post is missing. Have you done that? Or are you still thinking, one of these things, they'll finally push me over the top. I'll finally get there with this thing, having this person. No. These things I write to you, it's not trouble for me, but it's a safeguard for your life and how it's managed and balanced and pursued. You know, for those of us who are in Christ, and most of us are in this room, even after you find Jesus Christ, these ugly substitutes have a way of kind of working their way back in, even after we put Christ first. That's why you come to verse 8. He says, more than that, even what I did in the past, I am counting, it's a present tense verb, daily, all things to be lost. I have to do that daily and consciously or else these other false substitutes, these, these temptresses, these, uh, these seductions, they'll move their way back in and all of a sudden I'll find myself living for them again and won't even know I've made the shift. Now let me ask you, have you done that? <laughs> Gosh, it is so easy for me because I am so task-driven. I confess it. I really do. I want to fall down and weep over it at times because I get in these ruts where I just start laying up all these things that I got to get done. And I'm thinking, man, when I get over the last hurdle, I'll be free. And I get over the last hurdle and I'm in jail. That's where I am. Empty, bankrupt with all these things around me, but they don't satisfy. I remember hearing the guy who won the NCAA wrestling championship. He had lived his whole life. And I remember because he came to the University of Arkansas and he said, I finished, they held up my hand and the glory of it lasted as long as it took to clear the gym. Whole life. Safeguard for you. Jesus Christ. Joy is in the Lord. Key words in verses seven and eight are the words, and hear them, loss. Loss. You can circle them. They're so important. In order to gain Christ, I must let go of certain things. Otherwise, I will have no room. You can't embrace something until they, you get the things in, that are holding you up out of your own hands. Now, we're talking more metaphysically or spiritually here. But I'm, I want you to understand, it still has to be a conscious effort of the will to get there. Which brings me to reminder number three. A satisfying life requires decisive acts of letting go. If you are counting on anyone or anything to bring you a satisfying life, you've got to let it go this morning. And when I say let go, I don't necessarily mean get rid of it. I mean, it would be great if we could get rid of all these things, but many of them, there's nothing wrong with them other than they're at a wrong priority place in our life. We still have to live in the midst of them. Nothing wrong with achievement or things. But we must let go of it in the sense that it will not give us what we think it might, satisfaction. There's no man who can fulfill a woman or woman who can fulfill a man, even in marriage, ultimately. There's no job, no matter how much you enjoy it, that can do that. 
The principle would be this. If you must have something other than Jesus to be satisfied, you will never be satisfied. You will die a restless, brooding, disappointed person. And if you don't die that way, then you're deceived. A satisfying life requires a decisive act of letting go, which is scary for some of us because our relationship with Christ is so underdeveloped, we're not sure what's going to be there. It's kind of like the guy, the, the uh, servant who was asked to go down and clean out a well by his master. And the master told him as he went out, there's a rope that'll take you all the way down to the bottom. And he got in that, on that rope and started going down the well and it went further and further and it got darker and darker. And finally, it was so dark, he couldn't even see his hand in front of his face. And he got to the end of the rope and he dig, tingled his toes down at the bottom, but he felt nothing below him. And he had this moment of absolute panic because he had not the strength to go back up the rope, but he was scared to death to let go. But finally exhausted, he did. And he felt the ground three inches below his feet. See, you have to let go to hit bottom. And I want you to know, you have to let go to find Christ. You have to. You can't keep holding on to those things and thinking that you can gain Christ. Because Paul says, I had to suffer the loss of those things in order that, so that I could gain Christ. But you can't gain Christ with a handful of goodies that you think are going to deliver, because they won't. And that's what he's saying here. Paul did that, and the result of Paul letting go, the richness of what he felt and what he found follows in verses 9 through 11. He says this, When I let go, I found him, and I found not a righteousness of my own derived from the law, because that was never good enough. And he knew, and he confessed it in another epistle, that he never felt like he measured up, even though outwardly people said that he did. But what I found through faith in Christ was a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, not my works. You'll never work your way to heaven. You believe your way to heaven. I found that and it released me because I didn't get up every morning thinking, am I going to go to heaven? I felt secure in Christ just by believing. But not only that, I found that I could know Christ. And when he says know Christ, he knew about Christ when he was a persecutor of the church. When he says know Christ in verse 10, he's saying, I got to know him personally and intimately. I began to develop a relationship that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, that I might even know the fellowship of his sufferings, as painful as that is, but it conformed me. It made me like Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that that allowed me to obtain a sense of moving out of my deadness into life, like the resurrection of the dead, which will occur later. That's what he's telling us. I found the abundant life. Have you? Or is all this so theoretical, philosophical, and metaphysical that you're saying, what's for lunch? Really? Because we're talking the path of life and dissatisfaction. Where are you this morning? Are you satisfied with your life? Or are those moments where you're alone, you say, golly, I, I don't know, I'll just go to work and not think about it. You feel good about where you are and who you are. In a congregation like this, we have all kinds of people who are in well-respected positions. You have nice-sounding titles, salaries with enviable perks. 
There's growing popularity with you among your peers. There's awards that you've hung on your wall. There's a fine automobile that you're gonna leave this facility and go out and get into after the service. There's a wardrobe of very stylish clothes that you possess, a nice home to go with it, maybe even a summer home to vacation in when you're not there. There's the probability and the actuality for many of us of expecting even more in the future. There's this great feeling of accomplishment. That's the American dream. But now let's take a deeper look and ask these questions as we relate to this text. When you're all alone in your home or your summer home or your boat or your car, are you at peace? And do you feel satisfied where you are? And what about your marriage when you're alone thinking about it? And your wife and your children? Is everything okay there? And what about your inner person? Are you secure? Or if you could admit it, are you still afraid? Any habits out of control? Any addictions that you can't conquer? And what about some ifs? What if you became ill? What if you lost your earning power? What if you lost your title? What if your next physical exam, you didn't pass? What if, what if you had a stroke? Are you ready to die? Satisfied with life like Abraham was in the book of Genesis at a ripe old age? Are there some secrets that haunt you? Or are there some terrorizing worries that seem to dog you, that money won't ease? Has life lost its fun for you? Can you laugh or has laughter eluded you? There's no hearty laughs left. There's just more work, more list, more to-dos, but no fun. That's not what Jesus promised you. And that's not what the Christian life is all about. So how about changing your paradigm this morning? Going back to verse 1 and saying, you know, I don't know all that that means, but this I do know. I'm going to try to rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to try to cultivate that relationship. I'm going to try to move towards Him knowing that He can give me satisfaction when the flesh can't. But let me tell you, if you pursue Him, you have to do it His way. We don't like rules, do we? But you have to do it His way. In life, is Jesus alone. But listen, you can't earn it. And you can't embrace it unless you decide to first let go. And let's pray. With your heads bowed, let me just read a few statements of Jesus to finish us this morning. I am the good shepherd I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I am the way, the truth, the life. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rejoice in the Lord. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. 
You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.